There's 600 million people in Africa that don't have access to electricity. That's a lot, right? That's two-thirds of the world's total that don't have access to electricity. It's here. And so what we all should be trying to do is focus on how can we help electricity proliferate across this continent. Bitcoin mining just happens to be the missing link. Hello there from Tulsa in Oklahoma. I'm up here making part three of my film series, Follow the Money. This time I'm looking at Bitcoin mining and energy. I've been to Dallas, I've been to Austin, I've got to go to Houston, but we're up here in Tulsa for a Bitcoin meetup and we're going to be seeing a gas flaring site tomorrow. Very excited to get this film out for you all. Now, anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today on the show, I've got Eric Herman from Gridless. Now, this is a remote show. Uh, Eric is based down in Africa. We did actually try and make this show in person a couple of times, and once I was super sick, which was sad because Eric was actually in the UK, uh, but I was laid up with bronchitis and I couldn't barely move. So we had to defer it, but we've done this show remotely. I know I try and do them all in person, but this is such a cool story. Everything that Gridless are doing to try and open up untapped energy opportunities in Africa. Now, Gridless is working to help install mini grids in Africa and places that don't have energy, and they're using Bitcoin mining to help subsidize these projects. So a very cool thing that they're doing. Had to Garrick on the show, had to talk about this. So listen, I hope you enjoy this. If you've got any questions about this or anything else, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Good morning, Garrick. Well, it's morning for us. What time, what time is it for you? Yeah, it's uh, 3.30 in the afternoon here in Nairobi. All right. Well, finally, after a couple of full starts, we can get this interview done and we can find out about your amazing project, well, hopefully. I mean, we haven't gotten as far yet as we did that, even that, that fifth time or whatever it was. So let's see. Let's see if we can make it happen. I'm feeling confident. We've got good upload speed, good download speed. We've got Danny here. We've got you. We've got Jeremy. We're, we're going to get this done. Okay. So recently, I saw some tweets uh, about your project. There was a conference down in Africa, which I really wanted to get to, and I just could not make it work. Uh, but one of the big talking points, if not the biggest talking point, was Gridless. That's what I felt like everyone was talking about, your company. So uh, we normally like to interview in person. We couldn't get down to Nairobi. We can't get you here in Austin. So we're going to do this remotely. But I want to hear everything about Gridless, what you're up to. Tell me all about this project. Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, so at Gridless, what we really are about is, you know, yes, we do Bitcoin mining. Um, but we really were about backstopping mini grid uh, electricity providers. So really what you have in Africa is a lot of um, people who don't have electricity and grids that aren't aren't well built. And so uh, what they need is they need somebody who can come in and use that energy and help provide some sustainability to their own economic model. Um, and then what we do at the same time is we provide some you know, some confidence to to them that they can push out further to other locations and that they'll have a buyer of last resort. I think for a lot of people, it's probably going to be a little bit to understand what life is like living in these communities in Africa. Because most of us have just become very used to the fact that we live in a house with running water, electricity, you know, sewage, all the kind of things that we've come to take for granted, yet in some of these communities, they can't. So, um, Firstly, start with the cities in these African countries. All major cities, are they just like major cities anywhere else? 
Yeah. So um, that's a big bucket, right? So you've got, yeah, you've got some major cities. Let's start with that. So if you're in Nairobi or Lagos or Cape Town or Cairo, or, you know, just some of the big cities, it is a lot like anywhere else in the world with some, you know, maybe some more extremes on both the rich and the poor side. Um, And so you have, uh, and you don't have as good of infrastructure in those cities either. So um, yes, that, that is the case. Um, Then, and, and, and even in the cities, so for the past 10 years before this, we were, were building a, you know, internet connectivity um, infrastructure throughout both urban and rural. And, and, you, and you see that what you have in the, in the low-income areas is really, really nothing. And um, people are really struggling. And then you get a small sliver of middle class and uh, even smaller sliver of upper class. And, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a numbers game, right? So you have something like only 40% of the people in the African continent can get connectivity to the internet. Uh, the other 60 can't. Um, and even of those 40% who can get connectivity to the internet, uh, this is even in the cities, right? Not, not just rural areas. They, um, most of them can't afford it. So there's an affordability problem too. The same actually applies to electricity. Uh, so the numbers are similar. I think it's 37% or approximately who um, can can get access to electricity. But even those who can get access um, aren't always able to afford it. And so you have this kind of double doubling down problem. So access and affordability are, are closely linked for both internet and connect and power. And when you talk about access to internet, uh, does that include mobile access? Yes, that's and, and so when I when I talk about internet connectivity, I mean all of the internet connectivity, and um, something like ninety five percent of the internet connectivity in Kenya is mobile. So that is the ma- majority of that internet connectivity is mobile. Uh, so we do have these islands of connectivity now. Uh, Kenya is particularly well blessed with it. We have companies who've done a good job over the past decade. Um, other countries are not nearly as far along. So if you go to Malawi, you're going to have a very, very different experience than if you were in Kenya. Um, but even there, you have these islands of connectivity, but the prices are still high. So if you have somebody whose who's monthly you know, uh, disposable income is, let's say, $5, you know, you're, you're going to be very careful how you spend every penny, uh, every shilling. And... Um, and, and so you have to make a, a choice between, you know, am I going to pay school fees? Am I going to buy water or milk or bread? Or am I going to pay for internet connectivity? And those are the kinds of decisions people are making every day. So the expense is relative to what they earn, not so much relative to the rest of the world? Yeah, that's true. So it's actually, we get amazingly cheap data prices if you compare it relative to where you're sitting today in Austin or even in London. We have really, really cheap internet, uh, but it's relative to how much you make. And um, a lot of people don't have that same level of income. Uh, you know, so I was, you know, for, for years, you'd see me if I stood up on stage somewhere, I'd, be, I'd give some pithy statement about, like, you can't have a 21st century economy without power and connectivity. And, and that's true, right? Because if you think about it, you know, if you're going to build any of the digital services we think about for government, or if you're going to have some type of ed tech play, or you're going to have, you know, information for the, the doctors and healthcare providers, or if you're going to run a business more efficiently, you need both power and connectivity, um, internet connectivity. And so, you know, when, when we were looking at this space, it was like, wow, we've been so, so focused on internet connectivity for so many years, but power isn't there either. 
And, and so if we, if we really hope to kind of push these things forward, you have to provide a base level, that foundation that everything else can be built on. Uh, and it might seem like a simple question, but the, if you're able to bring power into these communities, what are the range of differences it makes? I mean, I would think of simple things like if it's a home, it would make it easier for the kids when they're doing the homework, when it gets dark, like simple things like that. But you probably have got a better range of examples of the differences it can make. Yeah. So, you know, I have some land up country and, um, you know, we have friends who are the farmers who live around us. It's very agricultural. It's tea fields and, um, you know, maize and just normal crops, very agricultural dirt roads. And, um, our neighbors, uh, don't have a power line, uh, to their house. Uh, they still use, um, they buy the, the very small solar, uh, panels that they can put on their house and they'll charge a, a light with it all day. And then at night they'll have that, um, or they use paraffin, uh, and paraffin lamps are, are very, dangerous, especially, you know, for growing children. And so, you know, you still have that all over Kenya. So what do you think it's like in other countries, right? It's uh, that aren't as far along, aren't as middle class as, as Kenyans are. So there's a, there's a big problem across the continent about um, electricity and what it can do for you. So, you know, at first when people get electricity, they, they do the, the, the things we just talked about, which is first, can I get the light bulb? The difference being between being able to work from when the sun goes down, which it goes down like a rock at six thirty to seven o'clock every night, right? So when it go, and when it goes dark, it's very dark. Uh, there's there's nothing else you can use besides fire. Um, so if you can't use a paraffin lamp, um, then what are you going to do? You're going to do nothing. And so people go to bed and they wake up early, and it's agricultural and it works, but it's not good. And it's not, it's not kind of furthering the human condition. It's not making it a more level playing field. It's not, you know, allowing people to get to the same level as other parts of the world. And electricity, energy is the thing that does that. You know, as much as, as, as internet is important, if you don't have, if you don't have electricity, you don't have lights, then you, you don't really have anything. So if you, if, so if you start there, you say, well, what do people do? Well, First of all, they get lights. Second of all, they charge their phones because everybody has a phone and they'll buy a smartphone if they can afford it. They're relatively inexpensive now. Um, the third thing they do is they will maybe, and this is this might be three to five years down the line, if they can get a, a you know a mini grid power cable to their home, um, they might buy a refrigerator uh, or a television, and then they start using more electricity. Um, other things that they do is you know, and especially in the agricultural belts is they, um, they're able to pump water now. And so then they can irrigate more and feed, um, their crops, uh, with more water as well as their animals. Um, so it, it changes their lives significantly, uh, the more they have access to energy. And does it do anything in terms of safety? Cause you said it gets very dark, very quick. So it depends. Um, so you'll see in, uh, towns, so not villages, but more towns, you'll see in places like Kenya, you'll see them erect these really tall towers with big lights on them that then cover as much, as much of the town as possible with, with overhead light. And so, yes, that does add security. In the villages, you need it a little less because everybody knows everybody. Uh, you know, it's these villagers who've been, you know, generations around each other. Um, but does it, add for, does it add security? Absolutely. It does every time. Yeah. Okay. 
And so currently, what are the power sources? How are they generating power across you know, uh, major cities, smaller towns? What's, what's the current energy mix? Again, it depends on country. Uh, in East Africa, we're really blessed with renewable energy. So I think something like 90 plus percent of the grid mix here is renewable energy. And that's hydro and geothermal primarily. Uh, we've had some large solar being built as well. And we have a very large wind turbine uh, plant up in the northern desert uh, near Lake Turkana. In other countries, um, it differs. So Ethiopia, Uganda, Kenya, Rwanda, um, you know, mostly East Africa has a ton of hydro. Uh, you go further south, you get more solar, um, and that makes a, a part of the mix. But they're still building, um, you know, they're still burning a lot of fossil fuels for energy as well. Uh, that just, it's needed. And quite frankly, you know, I think it's fair to say that Africa should have the uh, benefit of going through the same energy use curve that the rest of the world got to use. Uh, is there plenty of investment wanting to come in and support uh, these communities. <laughs> so there's plenty of discussions and, and, and people trading words about it. Uh, you know, right. so, you know, if you talk to the world bank sorts um, and, you know, the USAIDs and CEDAs and, you know, UK type organizations, they're all talking about how much we need to build more energy in Africa. And they're right. I mean, they're absolutely right about that. Um, there's been a huge amount of money committed to it. Uh, not, a huge amount of movement on that money. Uh, it takes a long time uh, to, to actually move that money out and put it to work. Uh, there's there's some interesting things that are happening. You know, if you if you look at across a country, there is a grid. That grid not, might not be well built. It might be okay on its generation side. It might be poor. It might be good. Um, but generally, the grid and the distribution of that energy is where things fall down. And um, the you know, what we're seeing is that, you know, you'll go into cities like Lagos and you'll get, you know, 30 plus um, power outages in a month. Uh, in Kenya, you get maybe three to five. Uh, and that's just downtown Nairobi, right? Um, but if you're on a mini grid, you might get one outage in a month. And so it's it's a the ability for these these energy distribution arms of the of the grid to be able to do it and do it well. And, and that's just, it's difficult for them to, uh, to do. We're not well connected on our grid. And therein lies the opportunity and, and the challenge. And Eric, what's your background? What, how come this has become your mission? Yeah, I'm, I might not look like it or sound like it, uh, but I grew up in Sudan and Kenya and uh, went to the U.S. for university and then came back, uh, gosh, was it? Early 2000s, started building tech companies here in Kenya. This is home. Um, and so, yeah, I've been very involved in the tech ecosystem build um, as well as uh, you know, so it really started with software and then um, got into, uh, well, small history. So Ushahidi is one of the first platforms I built. Ushahidi was built with uh, three other Kenyans. And what we were doing is we were building a software system for crowdsourcing crisis information during the post-election violence in Kenya in 2008. Um, that's global. It's big. It's used in 200 countries around the world. It's used every time you have a you know, a tube strike in London. Um, it's used when there's an earthquake in Pakistan or a flood in, you know, name your country, um, as well as almost every election like Latin America. So there's that, that, that platform is really solid and valuable and has gone global. And then also built out the iHub here in Nairobi. The iHub is the um, kind of the big tech space, the nerve center for the tech community. 
Um, that grew to about 17,000 members in just a few years. And um, it was in the midst of that that I was I started to get really interested in, if software is so easy, why can't we do some of the things in hardware that um, would really change things as well? And so started to think about what are the what are the what are the things that we're missing that are being made elsewhere in the world that we could make locally, uh, we could design locally, and um, so that's where the company Brick came from. Uh, and Brick, you know, it first started being a hardware company building the best router for internet connectivity, the most rugged router, something you could kind of use and take anywhere in the world and have connectivity. And we did that, and we realized that building that as a as a hardware company was a linear business, and so also realized that we weren't solving the real problem of how do you connect people to the internet? That's actually what's needed. And so um, started deploying that hardware as a, as the base for a, a whole layer of connectivity ended up connecting a million people across Kenya and Rwanda and um, recently sold that company and uh, taking that same kind of understanding of infrastructure, hardware and software and applying it into um, this new space around energy and Bitcoin. And your Bitcoin story. Tell me that. How did you get into Bitcoin? So it's actually that one's uh, both, you know, everybody has their, oh, shoot, I should have seen that earlier um, phase. Yeah, and, don't, please. Uh, <laughs> so mine came around when we were building the IHAB in 2010. And um, we had, you know, we had, you know, this great group of people um, and we, we knew what was going on in tech everywhere. And we're looking at Bitcoin and we built a supercomputer cluster and never mind with it. Right? You know, like, we thought about it, we talked about it, but we never did it. So 2010, we could have done quite well with that. Um, and then, but in 2013, we had just started the brick company and we were, we were looking at the, um, there was 300 megawatts of wind energy being built up in Northern Kenya. And it was, it's phenomenal. So this is up in Turkana. It's like a lunar landscape desert. It's just barren, but it has some of the best wind in the world. It's just, just amazing. And so, um, you know, these European companies have been contracted to build these massive um, windmills up there, and they had started. And they had built it without any contract for transmission. So they built it, and it sat there, and it pumped power into the ground for six years while they built out the power distribution. And we were looking at that in 2013 and we had just received funding for, for brick and Philip, my business partner was saying, Hey, you know, we should go up there. You know, what's a, what's a type of business that you could put up there and get just some decent connectivity on the internet and be able to, to do something with Bitcoin mining. And I was like, dude, we just got funding for this other company. We got to focus, man. And so, yeah, you know, there was the second time that I didn't do it. And so when it, <laughs> when it came to 20, it was like, you know, when we saw what was happening in 2020 and 2021, I was like, you know, I am done not doing this. I've said, I've said no two times. If I say no a third time, then it's on me, right? It's really on me. And that's how I said, you know what, even though like, right when we started considering this and we started playing with it, Bitcoin prices were high. The prices of miners were incredibly high. It took us, you know, we were, we were being told four five, six months before we could receive a $12,000 Bitcoin miner in Nairobi. And we're like, oh my gosh, this is crazy, but we need to do this. We need to figure this out. And, um, you know, the, the stars aligned and uh, uh, the price on Bitcoin crashed and the price of Bitcoin miners, you know, went down by a factor. And now we're able to buy Bitcoin uh, miners and put them to work in the right way. You know, and who, know who knew that would have happened? So I'm, I'm glad we started when we did. Great. Okay. And also, can you give us a bit of a uh, lens into 
Bitcoin understanding, adoption in Africa? Because we hear about it a lot. And I know Jack Dorsey's uh, very keen to support the proliferation of Bitcoin in Africa. But we often get told, uh, because in certain countries, a lot of people uh, really appreciate the uh, Bitcoin and, and are using it. But also at the same time, we, we're fully aware that scams have proliferated through Africa as well. But uh, it's all kind of secondhand evidence. As somebody who's been there, spent a lot of time, obviously various different countries, can you give us a, a lens into what's happening there? Yes. Um, so when we started up, and I'll come at this from two different angles. I'll say from when we started up with Gridless, I started to really try and connect to the other Bitcoin miners, sorry, Bitcoiners in Kenya, just in Kenya alone. And really struggled um, because there's a lot of people who are interested in crypto, uh, and very few who are interested in in just Bitcoin. Uh, so there's a there's a handful of people who are just Bitcoiners, and then there's a lot of people, many 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 thousands, maybe millions, who are really into crypto. And um, a number of them have been burned over the past few years um, because it really is. It, you know, if you think about it, you know the the problems that we talk about with with um, Payments, the problem we, so we talk about with moving money with banks and borders and everything like that, it's, it really hits home here. Uh, maybe it hits home here worse than it does in the UK or the US or you know, most developed parts of the world. And so people really do need this thing. And they need it for a couple of reasons. They need it for payments. Uh, they do need it for um, the, the ability to just do peer-to-peer, so like send money up country. Um, but, but most of all, like... They, most of them don't have bank accounts. So what do you do with somebody who doesn't have that, right? So in, in Kenya, we have Safaricom and M-Pesa. So M-Pesa is, you know, a mobile money um, system. And people say, well, you have mobile money in Kenya. You should be fine, right? You should be able to move money fairly frictionless. You, you know, you have all these abilities that, quite frankly, most of the other countries in Africa don't have. The cost of moving that money on M-Pesa is not insignificant to people. Most Kenyans, if they have a choice, will use cash rather than M-Pesa. And that's because there is a very high transaction cost. So if you can take something and and use, um, in this case, I think I think Bitcoin, I think the Lightning Network on top of that is really, really the right way to think about it. And this is why if you, if you look across the whole African continent about who's building the two things that I think the most relevant for African Bitcoiners and or the usage of Bitcoin by Africans, which is maybe the better way to think about it, is is Machinkura, who is out of South Africa, and the ability to pay via USSD with a dumb phone, right? Just a you know a phone that you can use without any real touch screen or anything. And two is um, what they're building at Bitnob, which is just an on ramp into buying and 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 moving it across currencies. So. Uh, it, and, and then there is a third, more important thing too, which is you have to remember that while the devaluation of the dollar, of the euro, of all these other things are happening, it has a trickle down effect to our third order currencies of the Kenya shilling um, and and others across Africa, where we get burned even worse. So you know the Kenya shilling, I think, is devalued um, from one hundred, I think it was one hundred and four shillings to the dollar this time last year to one twenty five today. Um, and so that's pretty significant. It's not as bad as Ghana, um, but it's pretty bad. And, um, you know, so there's, there's some real, there's some real needs for it. We've had similar in the UK against the dollar in the last year. 
Uh, that's true. You guys did. So did the euro, right? Yeah, I guess everybody's yeah. getting hammered if you don't own the dollar. And so you have to have something to hedge against that with. This show is brought to you by Ledin. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only a Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Next up, it is Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S+. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S+, maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast, and I absolutely love the S+. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Also today, we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, and they are trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino that you can go to. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. So when I went up to Venezuela, people use five currencies. Uh, this, uh, the technical, uh, technically literate will use Bitcoin. Uh, they are forced to use the Bolivar People do want the dollar. So especially if you go into Caracas, they want the dollar. Uh, but they also will use the Colombian peso and what was that stupid crypto they built? The Petro. And the Petro, but no one really wants to use that. <laughs> but but I even saw the same when I was in uh, Cambodia. I took my kids out to Cambodia a couple of years ago. Um, and, you know, if you're in a, you know, well, you know, if you're in a major city, they, they want the dollar. Uh, and they also, they want crisp flat dollars and they won't take any dollars that have any kind of tear in them in the slightest but we know that people we we know that people try and find better money when they need it and so in terms of across africa or the places you've been is does the dollar proliferate as well do people want the dollar not every day is a means of exchange no um okay. but as a uh, as something to to hold or um then yes, or to trade if they're a trader, absolutely. So uh, here, it's, I think it's a little different. Of course, again, it's country by country. If you go down to Zimbabwe, like yes, the kind of a hundred dollar USD bill is is king, right? Um, but if you're in Kenya, people will still use the shilling day to day. But in uh, yeah, it's it's interesting here. You talk about like you know have to be a crisp, clean bill, no cuts, uh, no tears. 
Um, here it also has to be a hundred dollar bill from a certain year forward, even if you go to a forex. So even an official forex, they'll only take it from a certain year forward. So not a, you know, I think I'm, I'm trying to remember that year. I can't. I think it's, maybe it's like 2008 or something. They won't take a hundred or if they take it, you get discounted on it. To, I think maybe 20. percent uh, So it's pretty significant. Well, why is that? I don't trust it because the the U.S. changed something on this dollar bill, and they just and then you know the fear was that it wasn't going to have the same value anymore, so they just actually, um, you know, they don't they don't. And, and here it is: it's a it's a it's a USD buyer's market, right? So um, they get to set the rules. Right. Okay. So, and, and just back into the banking infrastructure, you mentioned there's issues with the banking infrastructure. Some people don't have banking. What other kind of issues are there? Yeah, it's not just that some people don't have banking. Across the continent, there's only like 45% of the con- of the continent that does have banking. So the majority doesn't. Um, so if they don't have it, what do they do? Well, it's, you know, it's um, in Kenya, you'll put money in M-Pesa. And so that's a way to store it. And it's a little more secure. But most people just have cash. You know, it's cash under the mattress um, and cash payments for things every day. Uh, that just That's just kind of how it is. And, um, and, and, you know, in the cities, you have more access to cash when you're in the rural areas, it's, it's actually really hard to find cash sometimes. And so, um, you know, having an alternative means, um, and I actually think if, you know, if I wasn't building grid lists, what else would I be building? I think there's a really interesting play and I'm hoping that somebody does this, which is, you know, if you, if you take Bitcoin as your base layer and you use lightning as the transmission layer, it still has costs. And I think that, you know, what we call agents here, or just, you know, these are people who run Dukas and run stores. If they use the Lightning Network at that level, it's fine. But everyday people, um, it still has a high, pretty high transaction costs. I think there's a maybe a third order that needs to be built on top of that. And that's where guys, you know, where, you know, we, we've been fortunate to have guys like OB um, Nosu on our um, on our investment side. And, you know, he's building Fediment. And I think that idea of a, of a kind of, he was, he coined in uh, December, which is like, you know, a Bitcoin frontier town is interesting because you basically then have a community bank working off of his, um, it's called eCash um, that allows people to, to back into the lightning and then all the way be pegged down into Bitcoin, but do it without any, any, um, any cost friction, um, and I think that becomes really important in the future for uptake across the continent. And how do you find educated people in Africa about Bitcoin? And the, th- the thing that always kind of I worry about is the price volatility and how people cope with that. Yeah, no, Peter, that's a good question. I mean, like we, we try to, you know, if you think about it, how we, we, we view it in the US or Europe, it's like we can deal with that price volatility to a certain extent. But even the price volatility over the last, you know, twenty four hours—I don't know, maybe it's maybe it's a um, a couple per- percent—could be fairly significant to somebody here. And so, asking people to put their save in, you know, put all of their savings into Bitcoin um, as an African is is, I think, very dangerous. And so, you have to be very careful about how you talk about that with people. I think in the, in what you and, I, and this is where I one hundred percent agree with with Jack Dorsey is that. The usage of Bitcoin as a medium, as a means of exchange, is actually the most valuable use case, and um, it will we will find its home here more than in savings. It will be used for savings, but it's not as or or it just won't be it won't be as valuable as the as the use of everyday money exchanging it for goods and services. 
that's where I think um, Bitcoin really will will be valuable. And it can't be Bitcoin itself. It has to be, you know, the Lightning Network um, and other things on top of that, that that make it work. So it just becomes another tool. Like I have bank accounts in the UK for business and uh, personal life, which are uh, which are. Uh, pound denominated but i also have with one of those accounts a dollar denominated account but i also have uh, a bitcoin wallet where i could store cold storage of my bitcoin but i also have a mobile wallet where i have lightning bitcoin and i've come to use different ones for different purposes to, that suit my life as somebody who lives in the uk uh, has a uh, recently rapidly devaluing pound who works internationally and travels i've learned the different monetary tools i need for different things i guess that's just a a similar scenario that people face maybe in africa and they will just use this as a different tool right and and so people are always looking for ways that they can either save more money or make more money uh and so they'll they'll pick up new tools i mean you think you use every feature on a phone you haven't seen an african use a phone yet um you know, you, you think you, you use that app the best it can be. You, you've never seen an African using that same app, right? They'll, they'll come up with ways to use things and do things that you just are like, oh, wow, I never thought about it in that way. Um, like, you know, one of the issues we have here is on-ramping into Bitcoin. So if we talk about education, you say, okay, let's say, let's go to the village. And you guys should join me sometime as we go to a village. And we say, okay, let me tell you about Bitcoin. And you talk about Bitcoin. You say, isn't this amazing? And you say, well, how can you buy it? Well, you're going to have some crickets for a minute. Nobody, like, there's, it's really hard to buy. What you have to, you know, go download. So you have to have an internet connection. You have to have a smart enough phone that you can download the BitKnob app, um, register an account, and then you can buy. Or alternatively, maybe you have an Impesa account already on your dumb phone, and um, you have a friend who has access to a smartphone or the internet, and you can go to Paxful or local Bitcoins, and then you can trade you know, with Mpesa, Kenya shillings for Bitcoin. Um, it's fairly expensive, by the way. You know, those are not cheap ways to accrue Bitcoin. Um, you know, it's actually difficult. Like there's a, there, the, the biggest problem we have, I think right now is on-ramps and off-ramps uh, to Bitcoin. Uh, because even if you can get people to believe that this is a thing that they can use, um, then how do they do it? It's not, it's not simple. And I guess there's another consideration. One of the things we talk to people about with Bitcoin is not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Back up your private keys. Uh, I have a three or five multi-sig setup for my cold storage where I have keys distributed into different geographic locations. Uh, But that suits somebody who's a Westerner who lives in the UK, who has all the options of you know, family who live in different locations, friends, offices, you know, uh, you could take out the security boxes at banks. Like there's lots of different options to do something like that. If you're a villager, live in a village and I've, I've no idea of what the housing situation is. And I would jump to some embarrassing cliches about imagining people living in maybe huts and things. Um, the idea of backing up a private key and where do you keep that securely is very different from somebody living in New York or London. Yeah, no, I mean, this is, so yes, you're not wrong. I mean, in some parts of Africa, you know, even in the rural area where I have um, a place, people still have mud houses and tin roofs, you know, that's very much reality. Um, And yeah, I mean, like they don't have the same, optionality as as you or i do for how they're going to do things um which is why i think what's what's going on with um fediment is really interesting um 
you know, that idea of being able to uh, have a community, by the way, we're very community based here in Africa. So it's that, that, that model does fit, right? Like this idea that there's people in the community that you can trust and, you know, that can be shared across individuals is, is, does work. And so, you know, that's a way to think about about your keys and your coins. Um, that's a way to think about your access to Bitcoin as well in a way that has been done before. Um, so I'm I am I am bullish on that. I hope they you know the the protocol as well as Fetty and the team are able to build some some useful tools that can be plugged in right away. Um, but beyond that, it's like you know um, you know you think about like how do you secure it? I mean, it's hard for it's hard for us you know, somebody in a village with a dumb phone is going to have a harder time. You know, maybe they can use, move it, move lightning payments, um, do things like that. But what they're going to end up doing is cashing out into the local currency as soon as they can after they've done those payments to hold it. Because there is a, a really good viable option for holding and securing it right now. Right. Okay. Okay. Let's get into Gridless then. Let's get into your project. Uh, explain in detail again what Gridless is. Uh, I know we covered this a little bit at the start, but I kind of want to dig into it now. Yeah. So, you know, we started off um, just looking at different energy um, and the mix of it. And, you know, there's there's opportunities to go after some of the larger energy generation and um, grid connected energy if you wanted to in Africa. Um, but the real benefit of, of gridless is going to the places that are not well connected, that don't have a good grid. So we found mini grid providers and we started just calling a bunch of them all over East and Southern Africa and saying, Hey, tell us about your, your problems. And so this would be solar, wind, hydro, um, geothermal tends to be bigger. So we weren't dealing with geothermal at the time. Can you explain what a mini grid is? Yeah. So we, we started talking to these mini grid providers who were all over the continent and mini grid providers to us, um, there's no really good definition of it, but we tend to think of them as people who are developing energy product projects that are probably under two megawatts. So, um, and oftentimes under one. Um, so we, 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 we found out that when they were going in and building it, they had to overbuild for the community um, for two reasons. One, because the usage of the community over time will go up and they need to be ready for it. And two, um, if you're doing wind or solar, you have a certain amount of, of, of energy generation during the day, but only a certain amount of use. And the use during the daytime is very low in these communities and the use in the mornings and the evenings is, is, is higher. So, you know, you have to build enough that you can, you can have enough for those periods. And that meant they have a ton of stranded energy. Like the energy is is going to waste. It's sitting there and it's literally being wasted. And it's being turned into heat and dissipated. And so we said, we have a better way of turning into heat and dissipating it. Let's put a Bitcoin miner on it. And um, then we can pay you for it. And so um, we found a partner who was willing to give it a try. We tested it out and, and, and it really works. And if you've, if you've seen any of the stuff we've done online, um, one of the first sites we set up was, uh, you know, it's about a 50 kilowatt uh, site. And the community around it, it was using 20 kilowatts of it during the day. And so that left 30 kilowatts uh, for us to access, which is, you know, maybe six miners. So we set up six miners inside there. And, um, and then um, at night, we would be like, what, what happened to the energy? This is hydro. I should start with that. This is a small mini hydro site of 50 kilowatts. And, you know, at night, it would all, you know, half our miners would just shut off. And like, what is going on? We had no idea what was going on. And um, so finally we went to the site and we were talking to the engineers. He's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, between 6 and 10 in the evening, 
um, people use more energy. So we need to, we need to use about 15 more kilowatts. So I just, I go out down there and flick off your switch <laughs> and we're like, Oh, um, okay. Well, you know, now that we know that we can do that remotely, in fact, we can automate it. So you don't have to walk down that steep hill in the dark and, and flick a switch. And if it's raining, slip and slide down it. And these are steep, muddy hills too. And so he's, he was really happy with that. We, and we turned on this kind of auto curtailing of a mini grid in, you know, in the middle of a very agricultural belt of rural Kenya. There's very little difference fundamentally what you're doing with these mini grids than say Hive is doing uh, in Texas. Well, I mean, I would say that uh, besides the orders of magnitude um, and the ability to get paid when we're curtailing the power, like we don't get paid when we curtail. But but it's the same kind of scenario, right? You're, you're making a grid more efficient. Yeah. So I think there's two things, man. There's, there's, yes, you're making the grid more efficient, um, but you're also providing sustainability. So if you, if you think I had never seen this kind of a, I call it a win, win, win situation. So when we, when we were talking to the mini grid providers, you know, we, we called up dozens of them all over the continent and um, they have a really big problem with sustainability. It costs a fair whack of money to put one of these um, sites together and then they have to charge a certain amount for it. So there's some solar sites where they're charging 90 cents a kilowatt to rural users who don't have much disposable income, 90 cents. In Kenya and Nairobi, we're paying 22 cents pre-tax on our energy, which is still fairly high, right? Um, and, you know, in places in the U.S., you'll pay 10 cents um, or less. And um, so it's, it's, I mean, 90 cents for a rural African user is, is, is incredibly high. And we asked them, well, why is that? that? That doesn't seem like if you're there to kind of bring energy to people and you're putting in a hundred kilowatt solar site, how does that even make sense? And like, we just, we have to make our return on investment. And so we have to charge this much and we have a bunch of wasted energy. Um, so what happens when, when a Bitcoin miner comes in, we buy that excess. And so it helps make the, the mini grid themselves more sustainable because they're getting so three, five times the money they were getting before. And, um, and that brings the third win, which is not up to us. It is up to the energy provider, uh, the, the mini grid themselves. They can decrease the cost to the end user. So in the communities that we've been working in, they have done that. They can drop the price from 35 cents before we got there to kind of more like what it is in Nairobi. So 22 to 25 cents today. And, you know, that's, that makes a significant change in somebody's life. So you have a win for us. We're mining Bitcoin. You have a win for the, the energy generation, the mini grid, uh, because they're able to sell all their power now. And you have a win for the community because they have a more power, more efficient power and cheaper power. And one of these sites, these, uh, these mini grid sites, what kind of size community are they serving? And what's the, what is the local economy in these places? Is it mainly farming? Yeah, it's hugely agricultural around here. Um, you know, we're, we're going to be opening up a site pretty soon in, in, in southern Africa um, that I, I think is agricultural as well. Um, but there's more mining sites and other, other industries down there that are in those rural areas. Uh, but in our areas, it's all, it's all agriculture. And, um, and so, yeah, with a, with a site that is, you know, 50 kilowatts, you'll, you'll probably have about 500, um, connections to it in the, in the community. Um, you know, and, uh, there's more connections. You can, you could actually build that grid out further if you had more power. Uh, so that's one of the things that's happened. Um, the second site that we went into was actually just a little way up the same river and they put another runner river site, um, a mini grid site there. 
and that has 500 kilowatts of uh, of energy, um, in which we use about 60% for Bitcoin mining, so 300 kilowatts for Bitcoin mining. Yeah, so in, uh, so in those scenarios, like in in a 50 kilowatt site, we'll have six miners on shelves inside of the the energy site next right next to the turbine, right? And um, in a 500 kilowatt site, we'll have a container sitting next to the site that has more miners in it and the connectivity to the internet and things like that. What is the upfront investment cost to build one of these mini grids? And I know it will change depending on the the size of the output. So it's, I actually think this is maybe one of the biggest things that need to change. So that's a fantastic question. So our partners, if they're building a mini grid, that's 200 kilowatts, that's going to charge them about $4,000. It's going to cost them about $4,000 per kilowatt to build. If they're building something that's about 10 times bigger, so 1.9 megawatts, that will cost them about $1,000 a kilowatt to build just because of economies of scale. So I think one of the biggest advantages that Bitcoin mining can bring is a new energy development where we can come alongside as a partner for somebody who's trying to build more energy into further off places. So move the grid even further out to the edges. And we can say, listen, you're going to build a 200 or 500 meg, you know, kilowatt site. Why don't you build something that's one to one and a half, maybe two? Um, we'll help bring the financing alongside for that. And then the Bitcoin mining will backstop the financing of that for the first however many years until it's paid off. And I think that is the is, is one of the biggest promises of, of, of electricity generation across Africa that I've seen in my whole life. Yeah, the reason I ask, because it feels like that is a initial investment that could be uh, high tens, but possibly hundreds of thousands of dollars just to get the site operational to serve an agricultural community of maybe 500 connections. And so I was just wondering of the economics of it. For you know, It seems like a very tough market. Yeah, you've talked about these communities maybe having people who don't have a lot of money, aren't paid a lot. I mean, I might be wrong here. These 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 farm these farms these agricultural areas might you know do okay economically, but it still feels like a tough business. You would think so, right? Um, but remember, if you have a if you have an off taker, an energy off taker who can provide you a base level um, for fifty percent of that or more, then you're actually in a very good position. So um, you had Brandon Quintum on earlier, uh, I think it was in December maybe, and he had a, you know, he talks about, you know, uh, Bitcoin miners coming in and creating um, space for new things to happen, right, for, for yeah. other types of activity to come on board. And I think that is very much what happens here is like with more energy um, and access to it, with more affordable energy, then people do more. I'm, I'm really on that, Eric. Um as you drive the price of energy down for the people in the community that are sort of close to the grid that are operational now, presumably their usage of energy will increase. So what does Gridless plan to do when that happens? Is it like you move on and you seed a project somewhere else and kind of grow it again, or do you actually grow out the grid in the same location? So our partners grow out the grid in the same location further. What we do is the more energy that's needed by the community and small businesses, then we decrease our usage of miners and we move them. And that's written into our contracts. And in terms of the kind of testing work you're doing with this at the moment, how, how well is this working? So it's working really well um, sometimes, and then other times it just like falls apart. So like, um, was it four days ago, three days ago, we lost uh, internet connection at uh, one of our sites uh, for 13 hours. And so our miners were sitting there 
mining away the whole time and um we didn't earn a single you know bitcoin or a sat for it and um it's frustrating because that's something that you know we know quite a bit about connectivity internet connectivity and um and that but we just didn't have anybody there we hadn't built the redundancy for connection into that site yet and uh so sometimes you have those issues um we've come across other this is where when you're in the trenches it's different than in theory land um where you know the the rainfall this year was really poor in in kenya so that means we're getting less water into the turbines which means that again the community gets first take and then we get the next so we haven't actually been able to run our 300 kilowatt site at 300 kilowatts um for the last three weeks um we've been running it at 100 which means that a you know only a third of our miners are running in that site so we're now moving them to other sites so that they get more usage uh you know so in reality, I think what we're, we're finding is that you have to be able to, first of all, build a very lean operation uh, with people who can figure things out on the fly, on the ground as they happen. Two is then build processes and systems in, that you can make sure that strengthen you to take to make sense of these variables, again, which is not, not an abnormal thing for us to have to deal with. But you have to build that into your organization and, um, and your operations. And um, I think as we're kind of figuring out that business operation side of things, it's going to level out, um, but it's going to always have some variability to it. The um, I'll tell you another interesting story. I, I, you know, the, I think the biggest, I think they're the biggest Bitcoin miner in Africa um, is um, Big Block Data Center out of the Congo. I don't know if you've ever talked to Sebastian. Sebastian's the French guy who started it. And um, they run, I think it's five megawatts of old, um, really kind of like S9 kind of miners in, um, in, uh, in the Virunga forest. And, um, it's, uh, it's a really amazing setup. It's a great setup. It helps support, um, the, the, you know, the, the gorillas and everything that are in the park right there. It's a, it's a very fantastic program, but you know, he was telling me a story at the Africa Bitcoin conference this year about how they have to, they have to deal with electricity um, uh, specifically lightning. So lightning strikes in the mountains are, 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 are really, they're very consistent. They happen all the time, but it also brings down things all the time. So they have to control for that. They have to sometimes turn off all their, their, they have to curtail all of what they do until the lightning goes away. You have things like that, environmental factors that are maybe, maybe a little different than what you'd find in, you know, the other places that are doing a lot of Bitcoin mining. But um, I think as we get, as we get to as we come to terms with the environmental issues that we have to deal with at a mini grid level, or even what what Sebastian is doing at Big Block Data Center, you know, you 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 start to build new things. You build new ways of managing it. Um, we've been building software now that can you know, there's software already that runs the miners. The Foreman is this really good software that we use to manage our miners. And then there's the software that's used to kind of see what's going on with the turbines or with the solar power, whatever it is, but they don't talk to each other. Right. So we're, we're already thinking about like, what are this, what's the pieces of software we need to write so they can speak to each other to do the auto curtailing and, and baseload management um, in these locations. I think there's going to be a whole bunch of innovation around the Bitcoin mining space that comes from Africa because we have to deal with it in a very different way. This show is brought to you by Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, 
This can be done automatically, so you just have to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement, which you know, that's always something I care about. Now, you do get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Now, privacy is something I am definitely taking more seriously, and with the recently released Wasabi 2.0, this becomes so much easier. Now, if you do want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but whilst we're at the bottom of a bear market, I'm only buying. We're hodlers, right? We hodl through this. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips all through this, and I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini have invested in building leading industry security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Also today, we have Fidelity Investments. Now, one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking how to break into the industry. And Fidelity Investments reach out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team to help shape the future of money. Now, Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day. And they have also been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. Now, they started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team of services ever since. And their in-house fintech incubator is where the teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now, you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. And they provide the resources, training, and development to make you successful in this emerging industry. Now, if you want to learn more about this, then please head over to crypto.fidelitycareers.com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. Yeah, I mean, everything you're telling me just sounds like the growing pains of a new business. You know, the unknown unknowns when they come along. Okay, yeah. okay, well, we now have to plan for that and consider how we deal with that in the future. Yeah, that's true. Um, I just, uh, you know, um, the only difference is that I think that the types of things that get thrown at you here might be a little different than um, in other parts of the world. Yeah, I can imagine. Um so what is the size of the opportunity here? So um, I, can, I can talk about him being a partner of this because uh, he's, he's like an early advisor and then ended up doing some investment as well. But we have a, um, a really old school Bitcoin miner who's been uh, helping us figure things out. That's uh, uh, Marshall, um, out of, um, Marshall out of Texas. Long. Yeah, Marshall Long uh, works at Rhodium, and um, he's uh, he knows more about this space um, than almost anybody, at least that we've met. And he's been super helpful in figuring out things. And um, so he came and visited with us in I think October, and he looked around and uh, he said, "You know, I think Africa 
might be the next big home of Bitcoin mining. And the reason why is because you don't have a grid. That actually makes it really valuable for Bitcoin miners because you can come in and you can do deals that would be very difficult to do elsewhere. And it's not seen as kind of turning the screws on somebody. It's seen as a, thank God you're here to help me. So uh, so when we go and talk to an energy provider, an energy developer, um, so we have, um, and let me give you some finite examples. So we went and talked to a solar farm that had built 94 megawatts of solar. They had been able to sell 80 megawatts of it to the grid. They have 14 megawatts that are just sitting there stranded. So they had never heard of Bitcoin, never thought of Bitcoin mining, any of that stuff. So we went there and we spent the first hour just explaining what Bitcoin is, what Bitcoin mining is, how the Bitcoin network works, this global, you know, um, this global network of, of computers and, and hash power. And then at the end of it, they said, so how much are you going to pay for the power? We said, we're not going to pay you anything. Um, and they said, well, we need to be paid, you know, X amount for this power. We said, well, here's the deal. You're not selling that power to anybody. But I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll give you 30% of the, of the revenue. We'll give you 30% of the Bitcoin that's mine every minute of every day. And they sat there and thought about it. They're like, okay. And we went around and, and, and saw everything for the next hour. And we came back and said, well, how much are you going to pay? And he's like, we're not going to pay. You're going to get 30% revenue share on this Bitcoin. They're like, I know, but and we're like, you're not getting anything else. There's nobody else to sell this power to. They're like, okay, you're right. And we can do, let's start with two megawatts. Let's see what we can do. So that's the kind of thing that happens here. And I think that's why Marshall and others see the advantage. Like, there's not only the larger power generation, you know, renewable power generation sites that are like them. And hydro is the same. Hydro has massive amounts of stranded energy. Like in, in, in East Africa alone, there's over 200 megawatts of just stranded energy in, in, I think actually in just Kenya alone, there's 200 megawatts of just stranded energy. And um, that's mostly hydro, um, some solar. And, um, and, you know, you look at that, you're like, wow, that's a big opportunity. And then you turn over here and you say the mini grids have the same problem at a smaller scale. Our business has been built around saying, hey, we want to do a very, instead of just kind of vertical growth where we go to big mining sites and we build another just big data center, we want to build, you know, we want to build laterally. We want to, we want to build horizontally where we have many small sites and maybe a couple larger ones right in the future. But um, we think that's, that's where growth and decentralization security of the network comes from. And there's a additional benefit here because you could have turned around to them and said, yeah, we'll pay you X cents on the dollar for, uh, for your power. And they would have just issued you an invoice, you'd have paid them, but you've kind of forced them to learn a little bit about Bitcoin now. And they're people <laughs> who work in this sector. They're going to tell other people who work in this sector about what they're doing. So you help spread the knowledge and understanding of Bitcoin as well. Yeah, we do. You know, we think we have um, a pretty nice pole position in the space, but you talk about sharing, right? Um, I'm wearing the, the Gamma shirt. Gamma is the Green Africa huh. Mining Alliance, right? And it's just an association of other renewable energy um, based Bitcoin miners in Africa. And there's only five of us right now. But the idea is like, how can we share this knowledge so it can be done by more people? Gridless alone can't take advantage of all the opportunities that are just in East Africa. So why would we try and, 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 and take that knowledge and just own it ourselves? We should share this. We should share the methodologies. We should share the blueprints for how to do this. And um, we, should, we should also share some data with each other 
and maybe with the regulators who are going to come along behind us and try and, and make you know, laws around this so that it opens it up to um, more people, more, more Bitcoin is being mined on the continent, um, more companies are being developed around it, some small, some large. Um, no doubt some will be even larger than us. And, um, but it also opens it up to the energy guys in a way that they've never, never had it before. And I think that's, that's what gets exciting. When you, when you can take, the, and just so you know the numbers, there's 600 million people in Africa that don't have access to electricity. That's a lot, right? That's two thirds of the world's total that don't have access to electricity that's here. And so what we all should be trying to do is focus on how can we help electricity proliferate across this continent? Bitcoin mining just happens to be the missing link that allows that to happen. And so it ends up being good business for us. It also ends up being good for the rest of society. And Eric, would you say it's fair to say that whilst you're an entrepreneur and you've clearly had a successful career, this is part mission driven? <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I, like I just have always been, if you're going to spend your life doing something, build something that makes the world a better place, makes it more meaningful. I think that's where I sit. Um, you know, there's, there's, you can build all kinds of things. You can make all kinds of money. Um, you can build small things and like you can build large things, but whatever you try and do and whatever I try and do it, let me say is try and build something that does help, you know, proliferate the, the a better human condition. And, um, and yes, you should make money at the same time because I, you know, I grew up here and I've seen the, the damage that NGOs and government can do. And so I think if you actually want to make change happen in, in Africa, then you build businesses, you grow well. And um, I think business is the right way, is the right vector for that. So I asked the question for a reason, because uh, as a Bitcoiner, I'm a Bitcoiner, Danny's a Bitcoiner, you're a Bitcoiner. Uh, when we, we you know, travel to, say, a Bitcoin meetup, we spend most of our time just talking about ideas and opportunities and what people are working on. But then outside of that, we also have to interact with the non-Bitcoin world, which can be very challenging. Mm -hmm. uh, we have people who are very critical of Bitcoin, people who spread misinformation, risk of regulation. Uh, we have all these external forces working against us. Yet, they don't really understand. I think sometimes it comes from a place of privilege. This one guy, I can't remember his name, but he's a very critical, he's, he's quite a big critic of Bitcoin. He lives in Berkeley and you know, in San Francisco. He lives a very privileged life. And I don't think he realizes the consequences of what he's trying to stop in places like Africa. You know, he, he has electricity. He doesn't, well, he's in uh, California, he might have blackouts. But he doesn't have uh, the kind of issues that people in Africa are dealing with. And from his privileged position, he's working against a technology which supports you know, the, flourish, the human flourishing. Yeah, I mean, I think what you have is people, there's a lot of people with blinders on who live in the West because they can't see beyond what happens to them every day. And there are challenges. I mean, that's, that's not, you know, there's people who have real issues in the U.S. and Europe and places like that. But, um, you know, when, you, when you're super focused on your own view of the world, I think what happens is you just, you don't see what's going on elsewhere. And, um and the damage that you can do on a kind of a macro scale around it, um, because you're so focused on yourself. And, um, and, you know, for, you know, for that reason, I think, you know, you need more people to travel, you need more people to see. Um, and it's when those experiences are had 
that you you change your worldview. Like before you started traveling internationally, I bet you had a very different world worldview um, than you do today. And um, a lot of these people haven't traveled enough, or when they do, they're in a very controlled environment um, that doesn't allow them to actually see what the, the every man does and every man has to deal with. Well, I think gridless might become one of those things that I end up mentioning quite a bit on the show or on Twitter or when I'm with somebody who's very critical of Bitcoin and to say, look, you really need to understand the in what this innovation is doing in different parts of the world. Yeah, we've had different case studies like the Belarus protests against Lukashenko or the protests in Nigeria. But now what we have is a, another opportunity, which is create an economic, economic opportunity. So like, don't be surprised if this is, becomes one of my case studies. Alex Gladstein and I have known each other a long time because of Ushahidi and the Human Rights Foundation. And so uh, we were both at a conference recently and some of my old friends were there too. And, you know, very academic, very anti-Bitcoin. It's what I came to find out. And they were, they, they said something, you know, I remember sitting at the table and they said, well, it's, yeah, I'm just sad to see that you're doing this now, Eric. Right. I'm like, well, it's like, well, hold on a second. What do you not like about it? And then, you know, it's this, oh, well, you know, Bitcoin uses so much energy. It's just, it's not good for the planet. And I said, well, let me see if I can change your mind. Right. On that. And start talking about it. And, you know, it's very easy to be anti-Bitcoin when you're sitting in, you know, a comfy house in a in a nice situation uh, somewhere in U.S. or Europe. But you know, when you actually see the change and the ability for somebody to to do their homework at night, maybe cool their food for the first time ever, um, charge their phone, and be able to be in communication, you can't tell me that your comfort and um, even, even, if, even though we all know the numbers are wrong, but you can't tell me that your theory on what is good for you in that situation is better. Uh, it's, it's more important than it is for that kid or that family living in rural Africa. And I think that's what people forget. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the main thing, uh, sorry, the last thing I want to get into with you or ask you about is uh, we've had a lot of amazing innovation uh, coming off the back of mining, and we've covered it on the show, uh, whether that is what is happening in Texas with the grid, whether it's what Adam Wright is doing with um, uh, landfill sites and flaring methane, you know, the gas flaring sites, what you're doing, there's all this innovation. The thing that keeps niggling at the back of my mind is, will there be enough opportunity, will there be enough uh, profitable opportunity for miners to support all these projects. And we we made a show the other day with Sam Wooters. I probably pronounced his surname wrong. Um, uh, that's going to come out soon, and he's going to be talking about the same, uh, this actual thing. Um, but really, we need Bitcoin to t- continue to grow, the price to grow, the market to grow, the network to grow, to make these projects like you're doing and they're doing actually uh, sustainable. And is that something you think about much? Well, I, we're already sustainable now, right? Um, and I think this is this is the advantage and the the beauty of of the Bitcoin network and mining, is that if you can go out and and co locate and do a proper partnership with an energy provider, like I, for instance, I grew up in South Sudan, right? South Sudan is not a place you want to go uh, for most people. It's it's a mess. Um, there's gas flaring going on there all the time. So there's no reason though. If you can't find the partnership with that local oil company, you couldn't do gas flaring like you're seeing in Texas there right now. There's nothing stopping you. There's the risk associated with the political risk, right? Um, 
And there's ways to control for that. Um, but the opportunities are there and there's money to be made. And I think there's going to be money to be made into the future on it too. I don't think that there's, I don't think there's a lack of opportunity. I think there is, um, there's this Delta where there's a huge amount of opportunity and there's the, there's the people who aren't ready for that um, risk profile yet because they are, are fretted to death on Bitcoin. They don't know what it is and they're scared of it. So that's an opportunity for those like us to take advantage of and move faster. Just just before we close out, can I ask a question on that, um, the political risk? I, I know that Kenya is fairly stable, but what about the other nations in Africa? Like, how do you how do you account for whether it's corrupt government or non-government groups coming in and seizing equipment or whatever it might be? Yeah, so um, Africa is very relational. You have to have good relationships and you have to be partnered with people who have good relationships and are connected. So, um, yes, some countries are more stable than others. Rule of law does count. Um, and so Kenya is a, is a good place for that. You know, say Ghana is, South Africa is, Zambia probably is too. Um, but the, there's other places that are, you know, tougher. And, um, I think, you know, you could talk about South Sudan. That's one where if you're going to go into South Sudan, you better be partnered with somebody who knows the office of the president. Um, because if you don't, then you you know who knows what might happen so political risk um and geographic risk are real uh which is why what we do is we're we're quickly moving past just one country so yes kenya is our backyard it's our home um but you know getting another site going in malawi uh there's another site in west africa that'll go live in february um trying to make sure that we we too have geographic spread of our hash rate into our own company so that we don't um you know, get turned upside down because of something that happened economically or politically in the country. Uh, and Eric, anyone listening, how can people help you? Like, how can Danny and I help you? How can listeners help you? What do you want from people? So we were for, very fortunate to get some, a really good funding round uh, from the team at Block and Stillmark. And, um, you know, we've been able to move forward pretty well with that. Um, it allows us to buy things, you know, inexpensively right now. But we're, we're going to be, we're going to grow beyond that at some point. And so we're looking... We're going to look for partners who can either bring power to the table, um, you know, a good pipeline here in Africa, or people who um, we're partnering with some um, unnamed uh, larger mining institutions. We, we can take their older miners and put them to work. We can sweat their assets. Um, and so we can deploy more to maybe lower efficiency sites uh, like solar um, that way. And so looking for partners in that places uh, in those places is, is good for us. And then I think it's just like, hey, listen, tell the story of how Bitcoin mining actually is good for people and planet. I think that's that's the case here where, you know, we thought that instead of sitting out there and just talking about it, and writing about it, we're saying, let's do it and make sure that others can do it, too. Um, so there's, there, there's other miners, you know, we've got Simbola in Nigeria, we've got Nemo up in Ethiopia, we have, you know, Sebastian in Congo and, you know, like these guys need support and they need, they need help and they need growth too. Um, how can, you know, if we've already got our funding, then finance them, um, help them grow. Um, they, they, they have all that they need up here, but sometimes they don't have the same access to capital as we do. Okay. And if people want to find out more, where are we sending them? So it's gridlesscompute.com for us. Um, we're also at, at gridlesscompute on Twitter. And then uh, for Gamma, you just go to www.gamma.africa. Great. Okay. 
Danny, I think we need to go to Africa. I don't know when we're going to come, but I think we're going to come and visit. Uh, come and see what you're doing, but come and see some of the other projects. So uh, we will have to look at our diary and see when we can make that happen. Hopefully we can do it this year. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. This is fascinating. I think I'm going to be talking about this a lot, uh, especially when I'm talking to a fudster, uh, a privileged prick up in San Francisco, or somebody who just doesn't understand Bitcoin. I think I'm going to say, well, I need to tell you about something uh, uh, that's happening in Africa that might change your worldview. So uh, well done. Congratulations on your funding round. Um, congratulations on everything you've done. If you need anything from Danny and I, or I, just reach out to us. We're, we're here to help and we wish you the best for the future. Thank you guys for having me on. It's been a, been a real pleasure. Thanks, right. Harry. Thank you. All right. What'd you make of that? Pretty cool, right? I absolutely love what Eric is doing there with Gridless. You know, I'm going to try and get out there to Africa. I'm going to go and try and see this project in person, hopefully sometime in the next couple of months. Now, Africa is a place I've not been to before, whether with Bitcoin or just anything, just I haven't even been out there myself. So we're going to try and get out there this year and trying to get out there a bit more and cover some of the Bitcoin projects that are happening out there. I think what Gridless is doing is super cool. I think what Eric is doing is very cool. I hope you also saw that with this interview. But if you do have any questions about this or anything else, please do reach out out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoin.com. As I said, I'm out here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm off to a Bitcoin meetup in about half an hour. I'm going to go meet some Bitcoiners here and I'm off to a gas flaring site. We're working on part three of my film series, Follow the Money. This is all about Bitcoin mining and energy. Hopefully this will be out in the next few weeks. I think you're going to enjoy this one. Anyway, listen, have a great rest of your week and I will see you all on Friday.